All right, we are continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is our fourth message now in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, which we're, we're looking at lust and adultery, uh, help for an adulterous heart. So this is a this is a hard topic, and hopefully today we're going to deal with this faithfully to God's word and truthfully, and also with applying it to our lives and with grace and truth. So. Let's come to God in prayer before we read God's word. Lord, give us open hearts, open minds to hear your word, to receive the truth, to understand what it means, to apply it to our hearts and lives, and to put our faith and hope and trust in you, to seek first you and your kingdom and your righteousness and trust in your goodness and your promises to us. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. And so I want, I want to start with a story I once heard. It's a, it's a, I once heard the story about the Vietnam War, and there was a viper that was known to the, the soldiers there, particularly deadly, and they nicknamed it the five-stepper snake because its venom was so deadly that if it bit you, you might be dead. It could kill you in a matter of steps. Before you went very far, you, you might drop dead. And there was a patrol out in the jungle and a snake fell on one of the soldiers, bit him right in the arm. And the guy behind him immediately, he recognized what type of snake it was. He knew the deadly seriousness of this. And so he took immediate drastic action. He took out his machete and he cut off the guy's arm right then and there, instantly. Just drastic action. He knew he, he needed to do act now before that poison spread and hit the heart and then went to the body. And he saved the guy's life. In our scripture today, it speaks of an extreme danger as well. It speaks of a poison in the soul. And it speaks of the radical action necessary. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So in these words, Jesus shows us the nature of lust in the heart. And he also shows us that the spirit of righteousness that fulfills God's laws. God holds all people accountable to the spirit of his good laws. His, it's his desire that all people would live out the pure goodness of his word, of his laws. So, so that out of pure motives would spring holy actions and out of that it would bear fruit of righteousness in the world around you. So God, he seeks righteousness true righteousness in you both in your heart and in your actions and therefore jesus 
In these words, he called out both the legalists and the licentious. And Jesus challenges the legalist to examine his heart. The only holy answer to lust is rejecting it as sin. If someone entertains the fantasies of lust in his heart, he cannot justify himself by saying, well, I didn't commit adultery. He can't justify himself because he wanted to. He wanted the sinful thing. He just didn't do it because he was afraid of the consequences. And I'm going to use a very extreme example here to make the point. Let's imagine a person, as horrible as this is to imagine, imagine a person who wished they had done or wished they could do the horrible things that Jeffrey Epstein did. But they didn't do those things because they were afraid of the consequences that happen when you get caught. We would never say that was a good person. That was a horrible person. That is, that is a person who's thoroughly messed up. Their, their moral compass is completely defiled. This is a person who would do horrible things if they had the power and opportunity. Likewise, a person with lust in their heart doesn't get a pass just because they didn't commit the sin. They have an adulterous heart that will, that wants to do the sin, that will commit the sin if given means and opportunity. So desiring sin condemns the heart. Lust violates God's law against adultery. That is Jesus' very direct point here. But what is lust? Lust is a disordered desire. It desires a sinful thing or it desires a good thing in a sinful way or for sinful reasons. Now, in the case of sexual desires, they are holy and good when fulfilled within marriage between one man and one woman, and outside of that, they are not. Lust desires to gratify itself. It's only selfish. It's inherently selfish. It wants only for itself. Now, some healthy clarity, especially for young people who are thinking of romance for the first time or looking ahead to a future with marriage, some hoping for that future somewhere in their life. Desiring to be married is good. Desiring for that unique relationship that's only found in marriage, that's good. It's, and also, you know, there's nothing wrong with appreciating that another person is beautiful or handsome or feeling attraction. None of those things are wrong. It's where your thoughts and your desires go next that matters. That's where lust comes in. And here are some questions to assess yourself. Do you desire a sinful outcome? Is that what you're looking for? Or are you willing to sin to obtain your desire? Or to sin because you don't have it? Are you willing to fight others for it? Are you willing to re reject God and his word because if you don't get it? If the answer is yes to those things, then, then this desire is an idol in your heart. An unchecked sinful desires always lead us to 
actions and life that we did not intend. It leads us to dark places we did not intend to go. James 1, 14-15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So very plain, straightforward words there. Sin entices our desires with false promises, and that leads us to sinful actions, which always leads to pain and suffering. And James continues with this idea, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Jesus challenged the legalists to look at their heart. And Jesus' words also challenged the licentious, those who think, that I'm free to sin. It's not even right. Because Jesus' application of lust to adultery also applies to all other instances of sexual immorality. If the end is sinful, like adultery, and the desire is sinful, like lust, then everything else in between is as well. So any variety of fling or hookup or sexual encounter before marriage is just as forbidden as adultery in marriage. And the Old Testament laws are very clear about that. But I also want to talk about desires, because that's what this is focusing on, right? Lust and desire, the desires of our heart. The Bible addresses the desires of those who are preparing to marry. And so young people, I'm especially thinking about you, to, to just especially hear these words and listen to them and take them to heart, commit to them before you're in a dating relationship. In Song of Solomon, it says several times, and this is the woman speaking here, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So these are the words of a young woman. She's engaged to be married. She is, her heart is, is bursting with romantic joy. And she, she is saying to her girls, and if, if I may paraphrase, she's saying to her girls, hey sisters, don't stir up my desire for my man. It is not yet time. And the New Testament repeats this teaching. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. I'm going to pause right there, just a little sidebar. So singleness is good. That, that 
All ages. That singleness is good. Married and marriage is not the only good outcome of Christianity or Christian life. Single, just want to put that out there. Make sure everyone, especially our young folk, have that. No, have that balance in mind there. Verse nine, continuing. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul does not say, well, if it's too hard, if it's too difficult, well, then just do whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. He says, get married. And if the struggle is really hard, well, get married sooner. Get married today. The intention to marry does not justify crossing those biblical lines beforehand. In fact, they, they betray that good intention. So especially urge young people who are thinking about marriage in your future, think about your intentions now. Because if your intentions really are good and noble, then well then honor God and seek, seek the best good of the other person according to God's word. And if that really is your desire, then you will do things God's way. I want to talk here too. God instituted marriage as a, as a wonderful good for mankind. And if we just look, even just at, at the statistics of people in the world around us, we see that they show that people who graduate high school and wait to have children till they're married stay out of poverty. And people who stay married have better physical and mental health. They live longer. They endure hardships better. And the same is said for their children. Children raised by a married mom and dad, they generally they do better in school. They have better physical health and mental health, and they are just more resilient generally. Now, there's, of course, there are exceptions. People bring their sin into marriage, and they hurt each other. So, but that's them, them with their sin hurting each other. Marriage itself is a great and good thing for all people. Because what is there in marriage, and I'm not going to go through every verse that points to these things. I would take the whole rest of the morning here. I'll just, but in marriage, we find there is belonging. There is unity. There is acceptance. There is companionship. There is romance. There is love. There is friendship. There is joy. There is delight. There is pleasure. And the mutual commitment within marriage cultivates both sacrificial love and holiness in both people. And the bond and the commitment of marriage, it creates a safe haven for the nourishing and the cultivation of the person, both in the husband and the wife and in the children they may have. So marriage, it is good. And you can trust God's love and his infinite wisdom that what he declares is good is good and that what he declares is sin is sin and now walking the path of sin may sure look pleasing at times and people who do it may think they've they've even dodged the consequences a lot of people think i you know not what well, i got away with it but the consequences always come and our sinful desires have caused much of the heartbreak and suffering and relationship disorders and 
and obsessions and fetishes and idolatry and rage and conflict in the world. So the question for each of us, again, the desires of your heart, what do you desire? Do you desire what is good and holy or what is sin? We must look at God's word and accept what it says of us, that mirror it shows upon us. And then respond to it, because God calls you to deal with the sin in your heart in the most ruthless manner. I'm going to read verses 29 and 30 again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So God, through his word, he calls you to treat sin and sinful desires as the deadly danger they are. The consequences are eternal judgment. That's what Jesus goes to. I mean, there's lots of fallout consequences in this life, but Jesus just goes straight to the eternal consequences, the judgment and hell. And so the most extreme repentance is warranted. Repentance needs to be as swift and as extreme as that soldier cutting off the arm before the poison could reach the heart. Jesus' words are literal. But your eye and your hand are not the problem. Jesus wants to wake us up, to wake you up to what the problem of sin is and it's sin in our heart. Jesus comes in here in these words and he just, he obliterates our excuses. Suppose, let's imagine a person here, someone excused their sin with their eyes. Saying, Jesus, you, you don't know how hard it is. The images in the, are in the world all around us everywhere. Which, which is a true experience. But it's not the problem. I mean, Jesus is saying, ask, is, well, is your eyeball enticing you to sin? Is your eyeball taking control of you? I mean, because if, if, if that's really the case, well, well, then pluck it out and get a bionic eye or something. You know, pluck it, get rid of it. It's better to lose your eye than for your whole person to go to hell. Now, and suppose someone excused their sin with the body. You know, we've heard these excuses in the world. You know, oh, God. I've got needs, or oh God, the hormones are overwhelming, or that, that the hand, my hand caused me to sin, as Jesus uses here. And both, those are true experiences that people experience in the world, but they are not the problem. They're not the source of sin. I mean, as Jesus says, is your hand enticing you to sin? I mean, it almost sounds like a, like a comedy or a sci-fi scenario. Look, look out, you know, the hand is, is taking control. I can't control it. It's, it's almost comical if the matter were not so serious. But if Jesus say, well, if that's really the case, well, then cut it off. It's better to lose a member than your whole person to go to hell. If these were really the source of sin, then these actions would absolutely be necessary. Because judgment is that certain and your eternal destiny that important. And while these are real experiences for many people, the source of your sin is not your eye or your hand. It is your heart and the sinful desires within it. 
And Jesus said, talked about this in Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Sin is a poison in the soul and the cure is Jesus Christ. He shows us the truth. He was cut off in our place and he gives you a new heart with new desires for God's holy things. In the Gospel of John, we find these familiar words. Jesus is the light of the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, Paul prays that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Jesus enlightens your heart to see the truth through his word. Once you see the truth, you cannot unsee it. Not, not without great violation and betrayal of your own soul. The truth sets you free. It changes everything. You, you cannot continue to desire sin when you see how sinful it is. It might still tempt you, but your heart cannot desire it as it did before. The truth changes everything. Jesus also deals very directly with the judgment of your sin. In Matthew 5, we just read, he said the cause of sin must be cut off or you will go to hell. And on the cross, Jesus was cut off for your sins so that your sins could be cut off from you. Reading from Isaiah 53, uh, verses 6 and 8, for telling what the Messiah would do. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By him being cut off, you are healed and and grafted in. So Jesus saves you from the judgment of your sin and he defeats the power of sin in you. So if you see sin in your heart today, or you look back in your past and you see you, have, you feel guilt for a past sin that you have never dealt with. God invites you to turn to him and confess and repent 
and ask God to save you. Ask him to forgive your sin for Jesus' sake, to remove your sin and to give you a clean heart that desires righteousness. And he will do it. The grace in Jesus makes possible the goodness God desires to see in you. And then scripture also instructs us how to live. Like how, how do we do this? How do we set our hearts on what is good and overcome sinful desires what we find? Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself by people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So renounce it. Make a definitive decision in your heart to reject sin. Commit to leave it and never return to it. Likewise, commit yourself to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives starting today. Not, oh, I'll start next week. I'll start when I get past this. No, he says that radical repentance start today. And then also remind yourself what your hope is. Christ is coming back. We sang those words earlier. He is dead. He is risen. He is coming again. And let his glory fill your mind. Study his word. Consider what is glorious and virtuous and wonderful about him. And think also of his sacrificial love for you. Remember his promises and his grace toward you. The grace of Jesus is, the, is what fuels your zeal for what is good. And then I'm going to read Colossians 3, 1 through 3, which I love it. Another thing we didn't coordinate. I just put it in here. You picked the song with the quotes it. It's great. So, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So how do you overcome sinful desires? If you are a believer, you have been raised with Christ. You have been given a new spiritual life, a new heart. So seek the things that are above. Pursue them. Look for them. Find them. And then set your mind on them. Meditate on them. Think them through to understand them and what about them is so good. Fill your mind with what is holy and good. Drown out the darkness with the light. And remember, your life is in Christ. If you have found him, you have found your life. And I, and I feel I, I must quickly add this other advice. Um, because it just can't be passed over. Be wise in choosing your closest friends. And I say, especially for our young people, be wise in choosing your closest friends. 
They influence you. They shape who you are becoming. So seek friends who will help keep you in the light and who are not going to pull you into the dark. And above all, put your faith in God and his promises to you. And we'll read these, these two promises from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So all the things we most deeply long for, they are fully, deeply satisfied in God's kingdom. So put your faith in God and his promises. He will satisfy you. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word and how it speaks about us and our heart and what we set our hearts upon. And pray that we, we would each, we would accept it. We'd see, receive your word and we'd turn to you and we'd receive the, the radical thing you have done for us, that you have been cut off in our place so that you might cut the sin out of us and our heart so that we can be new, so we can be free from sin and live for righteousness, that we can let go of sinful desires and the sinful actions they lead to, and we can live in true righteousness from a sincere heart and righteous deeds. And pray that we would have our faith encouraged just to, to trust in you and to see your goodness toward us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.